right about now. Streaming directly into your brain at over 1 million IOPS. It's the Data Center Insiders Podcast with Simon Seagrave. Bringing you the latest in IT transformation from the data center to the cloud. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Data Center Insiders Podcast. My name is Simon Seagrave and today I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Jeffrey Thomas from EMC. So uh, uh, Jeff, or JT, uh, is the Director of Systems Engineering for Scale.io. How are you doing, JT? Very good, Simon. Thanks for having me today. No, well, it's great to have you on the show. And uh, yeah, I was really excited to have you on because uh, you um, you work with a very exciting product, uh, that, that being uh, MC Scale.io. Uh, I was wondering whether we could kick things off, perhaps uh, if you can give a little bit of background about yourself and then um, about your role within the uh, the organization. You bet, Simon. I, uh, I joined EMC about eight years ago and uh, helped found the V-Specialist team, was the uh, leader in the West, and, uh, and then took on some roles uh, in the enablement functions as far as building demos and, and content for our field people to use. I moved from there into a, a similar role in our backup products division. And for about the last year and a half, I've been the global leader for our Scale.io SE team. Uh, we're very excited about Scale.io over at EMC. It's an important part of our future and is, uh, is also a very important part of our software-defined storage portfolio. So as we reorganized EMC late last year into a core technology division and an inter emerging products division, um, Scale.io is one of those very important products in our emerging portfolio. It really gives our customers the ability to use their choice of hardware, commodity or not, to, to build out software-defined infrastructures. Yeah, it's a great product. I mean, I, I was fortunate enough to work with yourself and, and the team there for EMC World. So, uh, you know, we, uh, as a joint effort, we pulled together a, a rather good uh, demo for, for EMC World. And that was my first real exposure to Scale.io, you know, my first opportunity to get hands-on time with it. And uh, I've got to say, very impressed with the functionality and the ease at which you can, you know, deploy it and then, then manage it. Um, you know, could you just, uh, you know, give us an overview of how sort of Scale.io fits in the portfolio and, uh, you know, a, a high-level overview to kick things off with, uh, as, as to what it is and you know how does it differ from you know traditional storage offerings such as you know the VNX or VMAX for example? Um, absolutely so there, there's two main places where we're seeing the product really take off and get traction and, and one is in something at least uh, within our own marketing terms uh, we're calling SAN.next so if you think about some of the problems that you have with traditional SANs today um, we're trying to solve those with the Scale.io product. So whether that means, um, you know, it, the, the silos of storage that get created by making disparate SANs, the problems uh, with migrations, the, the overhead of fiber channel, we're really trying to um, help customers that are reacting to the problems that they have with their SAN and wanting to do things differently and giving them a new choice to, to go forward with. So it's kind of, uh, in that case, um, we often deploy Scale.io as a storage-only layer. Uh, and it thus, in fact, uh, replaces the SAN. But really where we see the, the most traction and people are grabbing the most value out of the, the software is in something we call infrastructure.next. So it's really a proactive approach that customers are taking to get more efficiency, more cost performance out of their data center. 
So we talked about, you know, four or five years ago or even more, this uh, journey to the cloud and, and customers virtualizing more and more workloads. We're finding that most of them were very successful in doing that, and it's time for the next step change. Um, the next big thing that's going to give them that 60 to 80% cost reduction uh, and the associated improvements and efficiencies that come with that. So, um, you know, whether we're replacing a SAN or whether we're fitting into um, a new infrastructure initiative, we've really made the product flexible enough to do both. And Yep, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so if I was a customer, if I've got some sort of disparate storage at the moment, you know, over the years, like you say, you end up with the, uh, you know, with storage sprawls, it were. Um, if I was to engage the services of of EMC and the Scale.io team there, uh, I mean, what would you what would you, would you provide me with? Uh, Scale.io, obviously, it's a software offering. Um, is it in appliance form, or, or how would I integrate it uh, into into my uh, infrastructure? Um, we're, um, we've traditionally been a software-only product. Um, we just announced and will be going into direct availability here in just about a week with something that we call Scale.io Nodes. Um, at the same time we come out with Scale.io Nodes, um, our partners over at VCE will be coming out with something called VxRack. So um, two similar things, and let me, let me explain what the, um, the difference between the two are. So Scale.io Nodes are literally a, a commodity server that has been tested and will be supported by EMC that's bundled with Scale.io software. Doesn't come with an operating system. Um, it's really just a commodity server along with a bundled software license. The VxRack offering from VCE will be a complete turnkey, hyper-converged rack scale system that customers can plug right into their infrastructure and start loading VMs on all the way, or, or right away rather. So um, scale IO is really or the scale IO nodes are really made for the do-it-yourselfer that wants to build up their own environment. Perhaps they're using an operating system that's uh, that's not VMware, and they want to be able to roll things out in a very programmatic way. But they want hardware that has been pre-qualified and, and known to work well with the scale IO software. And it, it really, that, that brings up uh, a couple of interesting things. Number one, while Scale.io can install on any commodity hardware out there, and in fact, one of the early use cases for it was to reclaim uh, storage, direct attached storage that was in servers not being used. What we're finding is customers really want something that has been pre-tested, validated, and supported by EMC. Um, this is, uh, you know, so, a, a little bit new product for EMC going to um, a full software infrastructure for uh, storage services, and they, our customers know and trust this. So, being able to get the hardware that they'll run this new software model on um, from us um, makes them feel more comfortable and, and and has less risk for them going forth in a in a commodity way. So I suppose from a support perspective as well. So you know, not only you don't have to worry about multiple support contracts, one for the hardware, one for the you know the scale I/O software. It's a you know it's a one-stop shop there, uh, as it were, for support as well, which is a definitely a bonus. 
Absolutely. And that really brings me to what I think the, uh, you know, customers aren't necessarily deploying scale IO on top of old hardware that they have laying around in their data center. Um, these really are new initiatives that are trying to solve one of those problems that I was talking about with uh, trying to do your SAN differently or your infrastructure differently. And there's, there's kind of three main things that, that, that fall out of that um, as far as important use cases or uh, really validation for going off and doing something new. And, and the first one being in, in all of our customers, whether they be service providers, large enterprises, or even you know a, a small account with a, a, a particular app that they've built, capacity planning with Scale.io becomes a greatly different exercise than it ever has before because you're able to use smaller, more discrete chunks of storage and compute and add them in a way that scales along with your applications and your business. So you can start off with something that has a very even balance of compute and IOPS. And if you need more capacity, you add nodes that have more capacity and less performance. If you have applications that need more memory, well, you add nodes that have more memory in them. And it gives you a, a more granular, easier way to to grow your environment and the, the need for capacity planning and figuring out, you know, which big frame should I buy and how should I upgrade it over time kind of goes away. That same notion dovetails very well with uh, what you brought up just a couple of minutes ago as far as uh, bringing the support contracts and the maintenance and everything coterminous together. So now your server refresh and your SAN refresh happen at the same time. Um, a, a node that's running Scale.io software can be evacuated from a cluster. We restripe that data across other members. So I take an old piece of hardware out. I put a new piece of hardware in. I move data and balance it back on top of there. And all that's done non-disruptively. So that notion of a fork with SAN upgrade, it totally goes away because uh, we're able to non-disruptively online, no software licensing concerns, are able to migrate your data very easily. Right. So, so if I was to uh, say, for example, I was wanting to do this upgrade, I could, you know, the scale I own nodes you mentioned there could happily coexist with my existing hardware I've got there. Obviously, would roll out scale I O onto the top of the, the existing ones, and it would stripe across both the uh, the scale scale I O nodes and also the new instances of scale I O running on my server instances I've already got running in my infrastructure. Is that right? Um, you, you certainly could use that as a method to to migrate. Um, when we when we look at supporting and what it means to have uh, support across that environment, if I've built out a VX rack environment, uh, much like VCE solutions today, um, we won't plug other things into that. If you're going to come for that one-stop uh, support shop, um, we need to have a little bit of control over the infrastructure. Um, so you won't necessarily mix your own hardware with VxRack. Um, same kind of notion holds true for the scale I/O nodes. Um, we would likely um, bring them into the same cluster to do a data migration, perhaps. But then we probably would separate the two um, into separate clusters so that we have what's fully supported by the vendor and what would be supported by the the data center owner or the end user along with other vendors. So we do need to keep a, a little bit of a boundary there just to make sure that that consistent support model holds up. 
Um, but certainly to bring the solutions together to stand them up or migrate data, that's uh, is certainly a possibility. Yeah, definitely. I, I suppose from a uh, from a support perspective, I mean, yeah, you've got to have those boundaries there. Otherwise, there's nothing really stopping people from uh, you know oversubscribing the storage uh, with with existing. Um, you know, existing data or workloads on there that would then, you know, bog, bog down effectively the scale I/O nodes. So, uh, yeah, obviously you need to uh, pr predict the, the performance that the scale I/O nodes can 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 deliver on, and uh, that's why you need, to, no doubt, to sort of uh, re retain some control on that. Definitely so, and I think one of the things that's um you know that I see from uh, you know I have I have a view into really all of our installations worldwide, both uh, production and proof of concept. And um, you know, obviously, if you're moving away from a fiber channel network, you have to have a very robust, uh, very consistent IP network to be moving into. And um, you know, where we're uh, you know, coming at it from the storage angle, and a lot of the people that we work with and our customers are coming at it from the storage angle, the, the network brings a, uh, a new facet to the skill set that a storage person needs to know. And, um, you know, simply plugging things in and getting connectivity um, can, can make things work. But when you're trying to drive either high IO or low latency environments, the, the setup of the network becomes very important. And I would say probably from a support perspective, that's the thing we need to watch out for the most is making sure that we set up the network consistently and, and with the, the practices that are set forth to, to give us the best performance possible. And by, you know, if I just plugged a switch that I happen to have into the network that runs my VX rack or my set of scale IO nodes, um, I could actually cause some problems um, with either routing or, um, you know, network pathing um, could become an issue. So that's why we kind of, it, it's, it's at times easier for us to, to kind of segment those things and be able to, to understand how an infrastructure is running. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and also particularly from an enterprise IT support uh, model, I mean, that, that these are a lot of, uh, you know, best practices that should be implemented anyway. Um, from a, from a troubleshooting perspective, that will make things a lot easier if, in case there are any issues. Um, but, yeah. talk, but talking about connectivity there, um, I mean, you know, on, on the uh, scale IO nodes there, what sort of connectivity, network connectivity are we talking out of the back there? Well, on both the scale IO nodes and the, uh, the VX rack um, appliances, each individual server node will have four 10 gigabit Ethernet ports on it. And we like to we like to use two of those for for scale IO, and suggest you use two of them for your front end application connectivity. And to that end, uh, within a scale IO um, ser or server that's running scale IO, and and really we have multiple pieces of software that make up the scale IO system. There's um, you know what we call our SDC, which is in essence a just like a fiber channel device driver, and then we also have our SDS, which is a daemon that runs on the system and virtualizes the direct attached disk that's in those systems. We uh, we like to uh, or we have the ability to segregate traffic and thus you know cordon off certain amounts of bandwidth for certain things. So. Uh, quality of service is definitely a feature set within uh, the Scale.io product. And to that end, there's kind of three different types of I.O. that can happen. 
and we can use those multiple NICs to um, either, either physically segregate that data um, or we can use VLAN tagging as well um, to be able to uh, keep data on, you know, different logical networks. But um, there's traffic from, you know, in essence, our device driver to the storage. There's traffic in between the storage that does the protection of the data. And then there's uh, traffic in between those SDSs as well in the event of a rebuild action. So if we have a, a failure and we have to rebuild the data, or in a rebalance action where we would add remove nodes um, on purpose. So we can we can use different NICs in order to route that traffic how we how we see fit. What I would tell you though is things have changed quite a bit. Uh, you know, ten years ago when when iSCSI was starting to really emerge. Um, any vendor would almost always tell you to create a separate iSCSI network, right? Run, uh, you know, a one gig copper pipe um, to, to each of your, your nodes that were running iSCSI or, or have multiple ones, depending on whether you supported link aggregation or, or failover. Really today, what we're seeing more is people using two or four 10 gig pipes and uh, doing VLAN tagging in order to separate the traffic. So the days are kind of gone when we have to put in a specialized switch and lay more copper down in order to run these things. We're certainly in this uh, converged infrastructure world and uh, utilizing those features to their fullest. Right, and I suppose that plays into the whole you know, software-defined you know, networking part, although it's not technically software-defined networking, as always using the VLAN tagging as opposed to physical segregation as a sort of uh, as a step in that direction as well. And like you say, it get, it'll give you a lot of um, yeah, use case scenarios as well, both internally uh, for internal and external customers. I suppose you could sort of uh, divvy it up for, for some sort of uh, some form of multi-tenancy as well, uh, which would be attractive to a lot of organizations out there. Absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's important to note that the software is really designed to exploit all the underlying performance of the infrastructure that's there with little burden on the CPU. So if we want to move into a multi-tenant environment, if we want to run applications right next to our storage, we're trying to make sure that we're a good tenant on a, uh, on a piece of, of infrastructure so that we're not overrunning it or overwhelming it with, with our storage traffic or the processing that, that needs to, to be done there. Which actually brings us to uh, you know, another interesting kind of topic where these things all kind of intersect. Um, as I mentioned before, we have customers that are, in essence, replacing their SAN and they're building a storage area or they're really building a storage array out of these commodity nodes in our software. And then there's other customers that are running in a hyper-converged fashion where the storage services are running right next to the hypervisor or the application. And and we are in fact unique in that we can run in both of those modes at the same time. So we've got heterogeneous operating system support. We can, as I mentioned before, we can have asymmetric nodes in our clusters, and we can either build up something that looks like the storage array that they run today, or we can move really to this next-gen architecture of hyper-converged. And 
what we see a lot of customers doing is starting off in this two layer so that they can maintain that network discipline, the storage discipline, and the server discipline. But they've got their eye on moving to hyper-converge because they know, number one, they can run their architecture infrastructure more efficiently. They can educate their people more and the, the people on their teams become more well-rounded in the IT arena because they have to, you know, the network person has to learn storage and the storage person has to learn network and, um, you know, the server guys have to learn both of the, and, and everybody kind of gets cross-trained. And as, as that happens and people become more comfortable running in that converged manner where everybody collaborates to solve problems versus everybody coming together on a phone call to point fingers, then people can move to this hyper-converged scenario. And that's what will really drive some very compelling TCO um, with an infrastructure like this. Right. So Scala, you know, is appealing to a lot of, lot of organizations with different models of, of uh, you know, IT infrastructure out there. Like you say, both those Either uh, you know currently uh, running um, hyperconverged infrastructure, or those looking in that direction to perhaps you know make that move at some point. I mean, t t talking about that, I mean, um, you know, where, where is ScaleIO sort of targeted? What what, what size of business? I mean, um, if, if for example we talk about the ScaleIO nodes there, um, you know, for, for resilience, obviously, I'd imagine you'd need more than one node. Um, sort of, where's the starting point, and sort of, you know, where's where, where's the outer limit? How far can you scale ScaleIO scale IO to? You know. Uh, what size will it grow to? Um, and you know, what's what's the process involved with that? Is it quite straightforward, or do you really have to do some forward planning to uh, enable you to do this? Well, um, at a bare minimum, the software requires three nodes in order to be able to provision storage from it. So you can set up a ScaleIO system with one node in it, but you're not going to be able to provision any storage. We make sure that you have enough space to to do that. In a, in a safe way and protect your data. So we require a minimum of three nodes, but really the, um, what, I, what I tell um, internal people at EMC is they're trying to help position this as well as our customers and of course partners is that you should really start off with six to eight nodes as a minimum. And, and 12 is really kind of a, becomes to be the, the kind of minimum sweet spot. And it has to do with a variety of things. Um, but a lot of that is Scale.io, as the name implies, is meant to scale. And as we get more nodes in a cluster, we become more efficient. And um, it, when, you, when you get to understand our architecture, you find out that we're really great for small block random I.O. because of the way that we handle our metadata and the way that we do many-to-many -many communications. So if you think about a, a hypervisor running lots of VMs that are doing 4 and 8K random reads and writes, we actually compress about 8 terabytes, I'm sorry, 8 petabytes of raw storage information into a very small two megabyte footprint inside that driver. Um, thus, that hypervisor that has all this I.O. on it is able to directly connect to the relevant nodes to satisfy those I.O.s. So we're very good at many-to-many um, -many communications. And if you're trying to do it with three nodes, there's not many-to-many -many going on, right? It's, it's really few-to-few. Uh, <laughs> few. Yes. Uh, but we get to 8 to 12, and all of a sudden, we can drive just phenomenal performance. I mean, people are always surprised at how good a performance they get um, out of the system. So 
Uh, but back to your question, right? So we should start with six to eight nodes. Most of our customers today are running either 16 or 24 node clusters. We have uh, a couple of customers that are up to 64 nodes. So scale IO, a ScaleIO system can manage up to 1024 nodes. And then within a ScaleIO system, we have what we call protection domains. But a lot of people could think of that as a storage cluster. So as we virtualize direct attached storage on systems, we will group together at maximum 128 nodes to create pools of shared storage. Um, and while those are our limits, as I just said, most customers are, you know, 24 to 32, a couple are up to 64. But really, um, adding, adding nodes is, is a pretty easy process. You can do it via our GUI, you can do it via API. Um, most of the time where clusters are, you know, of the size of 20 plus nodes, we find that our customers are usually using the CLI or Python um, in order to manage those systems, right? They're doing it in a very programmatic way. Right. So the main concerns, though, as you start to think about scaling above, you know, 12 systems are really going to be your network topology and how that's set up. And the, the, the other trend that I see coming along with this architecture um, is really uh, kind of going back to an old networking paradigm called Leaf spine networking. Oh yes, so, yep. That's a blast start, from the past. <laughs> it it is. You know, it was something I think that was uh, developed in the '40s or '50s in the university community. Not really used extensively, but we're seeing it become important in these rack scale data center architectures where you have servers inside of racks talking to lots of other servers and lots of other racks out there. So that traditional core switch to um, you know, boundary switches and top of rack switches. Um, certainly, ScaleIO works in those environments, but as we start to think about, hey, I'm going to have a thousand nodes running in my data center that need to talk to each other, the leaf spine topology is important. And sizing that up front is something that you definitely want to be able to think about and plan for. Uh, and I know that's a little bit contrary to my. Um, one of my value statements around capacity planning being much different um, in this environment, you do need to think about, well, am I going to have 10 nodes, 100 nodes, or 1,000 nodes in my data center um, from a networking perspective? And if you've put the network in appropriately to begin with, yes, it's very easy to, to add these things in. We've had to help a couple of customers really move from hey, I'm setting up these eight machines with a couple of NICs on it, and I'm going to do it on one switch to a, a leaf spine topology that could grow. Uh, and we can certainly, um, you know, proper planning and execution, that we were able to do those online while we were serving up IOs as well as, as moving storage around. So it's, uh, we, we, can, we can scale uh, an infrastructure very easily. And really just uh, making sure you've, you've got good networking best practices in place uh, make that much easier. Right. So you're, not, you're definitely not painting yourself into a corner. Let's say you start off with a dozen nodes or even three nodes, you know, and build up from there. And, you know, it really takes off. Um, 
you know, uh, your infrastructure or your company there and you've got to scale out, I mean, it's still totally doable to scale to sort of the uh, the large numbers you were talking about there and, uh, you know, they... You know your average size business, for example, if they're if they're trying out software, which is a question I want to ask you, in a, you know, in a minute. But uh, you know, around scale, if a company wants to try it out, perhaps in their, uh, you know, in a test dev environment or a lab environment, uh, you know, they're probably only starting off with three nodes or maybe half a dozen nodes initially, anyway. Um, and and that sounds like that's very simple to get up and running, uh, which is which is good. But before we move on to that, I just want to ask you a question around resilience. I was wondering whether you could talk us through a scenario. Let's say we're running sort of half a dozen or a dozen nodes in an environment. And I have a, a, a node failure. Obviously, um, uh, you know, data resiliency or integrity is a big, you know, is, is a big part in all of this. Um, how, how does Scale.io react to a node failure, for example? I mean, it's got data distributed across across the cluster there. Um, how would it react to that? And I mean, how would you go about sort of, you know, replacing hardware uh, after the fact? You bet. So uh, Scale.io employs what we call a two-copy mesh mirroring scheme. Well, it's a mouthful. Uh, <laughs> exactly, um, and what that means, uh, you know, if you want to, if you really want to break it down, we're effectively doing a RAID ten, but we're using the network to do that mirroring. So um, when we create a scale I/O system, we add we add we add servers to it that are running our. SDS, our Scale.io data server, and each one of those Scale.io data servers has a certain amount of capacity um, associated with it. So I can create different pools on top of those on top of those machines that then get married up with the rest of the storage out there in order to provide these pools that we create volumes out of. Um, when we create a volume. Um, and I, I talked about metadata before and how we can have all the mapping for our data uh, compressed very, uh, very finely into a small footprint inside memory on a machine that's going to consume the storage. We, we basically map out where medium-sized chunks of data are spread across all those participating SDS servers. So we create a volume. We start to write some data into one of these medium-sized chunks. And as soon as we write data into that, we make sure that that chunk of data is mirrored on another Scale.io data server. So effectively what happens is we have a very balanced, um, from a capacity standpoint, data across all the servers. And we have a primary and a secondary copy. If there is a failure, either of, a, of an entire node or just a disk, and if it's just a disk, we don't fail the entire node. We only fail that disk. But let's say a, a node fails. Within about three to five seconds, we are going to notice that that node has gone down. And we are going to, in a very parallel fashion, start reprotecting that data on all the rest of the servers that are in that cluster. So if you take an example where we have 64 nodes in a cluster and one of them fails, I have 63 remaining nodes in a massively parallel fashion reprotecting the data that lived on the node that failed. So if you, if you compare that to a traditional RAID 10 inside a server or inside an array, let's say I've got a one terabyte SATA disk in my, my server that fails. 
it's a very serial fashion to reprotect that device. And it might take six or eight hours to do so. Well, with scale I.O., since I have these medium-sized chunks, and you know, we a medium-sized chunk in storage is 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 generally pretty small. I have, in that case of 64 nodes, I've got 63 machines that are not only working in parallel, but are doing that in a very multi-threaded manner. So every machine is working with every other machine to reprotect that data, and we can do so in a very small amount of time. So there's a balance of number of nodes in a cluster that is important to think about, and it's really a lot of that can be driven by the amount of resiliency that you want within the environment. So if I only have three nodes in my cluster and one dies, there's only two working at reprotecting the data. Um, but if we get to my sweet spot of eight and I lose one, I have seven doing the reprotection and it's going to happen pretty quick. And obviously if I, if I go up to, you know, 49 and, and, and keep, um, you know, going up by an order of magnitude, the number of nodes, I am going to also reprotect that data order of magnitudes faster. So the, the balance of number of machines in a cluster to rebuild times are very important to think about. Another important concept there is, let's say I do have those 64 nodes and one fails. Um, you know, obviously a question that comes to mind is what happens if another node fails? Yeah, that was a question I had actually. Yeah, <laughs> you bet. Um, and if if I have if I compare that to three nodes, if I have three nodes and one fails, do you think there's a more of a chance that in that sixty four node example I'm going to have a second failure, or in my three node example that I'm going to have a second failure? Well, in theory, yeah, that the, the chances of having a second node would be definitely in the sixty four node cluster. Um, yeah. Absolutely, yeah, right? And without a doubt. <laughs> without a doubt. So, but if I have 64, I'm going to reprotect that data in under a minute. Whereas if I only have three and the node sizes are the same, it's going to take me 45 minutes or an hour to replace it. So as you, as you look at the, the probability and the statistics and you figure in MTBFs on server chassis, motherboards, drives, controllers, network ports, all those things, as we grow the cluster and thus have a, uh, a larger chance for failures to happen, we narrow down the, um, the time it takes to do rebuilds and those things effectively cancel each other out. Exactly. And one, th one thing we should point out there, I guess, would be, and we're talking about complete node failure here. So if we, if we reverted this back to a traditional sort of, uh, you know, a SAN or a NAS type scenario, if you were to lose the system board, I mean, generally you'd have two, you know, two heads or storage processors in a, in a traditional SAN, for example. Uh, you know, you'd have to be pretty, pretty unlucky to lose a whole node. I mean, and, and you know, no normally it's the disks, you know, your spinning disks, for example, that would fail. Um, and like you mentioned earlier, that wouldn't take down an entire node at all. That would just be deemed a disk failure, um, and, and the node would keep running. Absolutely. So if I have a 600-gig disk in a machine that fails, we will only reprotect the blocks or the chunks of data that were on that disk. It doesn't take the whole node down. And you would uh, you go off and replace the disk and re-import it into the operating system. Scale I/O will 
add it back into the cluster and start using that space. And that, that can all be done non-disruptively. Certainly with our scale I.O. node offering and the VX rack things that are coming, um, we'll be able to go replace that disk for you. You know, I, you know, we'll know that we'll know it happens, and uh, and be able to give the same type of service that we do on our array-based products today. So, sort of the, uh, the you know the uh, dial home type support, for example. Yeah, absolutely. So, those out there that are familiar with EMC, we have something called ESRS, which allows us to receive alerts out of your infrastructure, as well as gives our support people a way to dial in if you enable us to. So um, by adding that ESRS functionality into Scale.io, and that'll be both with the software and our node-based offerings, we'll be able to help diagnose and, and understand issues before um, our customers may even know that they have them. Right. Oh, no, that's, that's, that's really good. It's good to have that sort of level of uh, proactivity there. So, JT, I just want to circle back on something we were talking about a little earlier there. Um, obviously, you're, you're talking about the sweet spot of eight nodes there. And, you know, some, some people listening to this maybe work for smaller businesses or, you know, have smaller IT infrastructures. Um, they like the sound of what they're hearing here, but perhaps think, well, eight storage nodes perhaps is a little bit big for them. Um, one thing, you know, I, I just wanted to discuss there is obviously, uh, you know, we touched on this earlier, is about hyperconvergence. Although, you know, eight nodes, there's a minimum, you know, node, node count there, as you say, of three, uh, it's not as daunting as it sounds, especially if a business is, you know, currently implementing or uh, looking at implementing, you know, hyperconvergence for, obviously their, uh, you know, their, their server virtualization and uh, and obviously this the server level, uh, sorry, storage level uh, virtualization as well. Yeah, and and, and that's uh, bring up a very important point, and and that's part of the power of this solution is it really lets you go off and build an infrastructure that fits your needs and your scale. So if we're talking about very large enterprises, they're they're scaling in in larger chunks, right? They're adding twenty four CPU cores and half a terabyte of memory and and twenty four big disks at a time in one in this granular fashion. But um, a smaller organization could take a, a one U server with a modest amount of CPU and RAM and two to four disks in each one and build up a hyperconverged cluster that fits the needs of their business. And that's certainly as we are uh, trying to describe to customers, you know, what's the right platform for you to use and what kind of building blocks you should have. We generally suggest that you should have really three to four different types of server SKUs that you may use to, to build up an environment. And some of those will be just storage and have really no CPU or memory on them to the other end where you have a, a, a large density of CPU memory and, and flash drives and thus IOP. So if you think about having somewhere in between two and four server models that you use to create your scale I.O. or hyperconverged cluster, you can scale, compute, and storage as you need to. And that's certainly what we've done with our nodes. And we try to help customers understand what their reference architecture should be uh, based on what we've designed our hardware around. So we have, uh, you know, for that general purpose, I'm building out my next infrastructure what we see people using is a balance of CPU and storage. 
meaning you've got, you know, not the latest and greatest CPU model, but maybe one down from it. You're putting in 128 or 256 gigs of memory and 24 disks that are mainly spinning disks with some SSD in front of them for caching. Um, and we see that being a real sweet spot for where people start with hyperconverged. And then on each side of that, we have capacity optimized and performance optimized nodes that people can add in as they as they need to scale those two things separately. One of the other use cases, and you know, when you bring up uh, smaller companies, uh, one of the our, you know kind of our our secondary use case that we see a lot of besides the the hypervisor uh, type environments are where a organization has built a custom application that needs a lot of I.O. Um, we have a handful of, of smaller companies that really their, their power and how they make money is based on the specialized application that they have. And they literally sometimes need a whole array worth of disk and performance for just a handful of servers. That's actually a great spot for hyperconvergence. If you can, you know, buy a rack of servers or a set of four or eight servers to run your application, and we use a very small slice of the, the memory and CPU on that machine to provide storage services, it drives this really compelling TCO because you're just adding a handful of disks and a software license to um, a asset or set of assets that you had to buy to run this application. And it just it drives a very compelling TCO. And, and not only do the technology people like it because it's predictable and they get the same amount of CPU and IOPS when they add another node, the financial people like it too because it's very predictable scaling and it's at a finer grain than what they're used to in the past. Oh, wow, that, that sounds really good. Very good indeed. No, so another thing, uh, JT, was you know we, we've spoken about storage as obviously highly scalable, highly resilient, and what have you. I, I mean, what what other sort of uh, you know bells and whistles or features uh, does uh, ScaleIO offer uh, on top of the you know just your standard serving up of you know storage? You know, we certainly have uh, we have snapshotting. We have the ability to segregate data and create multi-tenant type of environments. Um, we can really build out to any performance profile that you want. So we can support PCIe flash, SSDs, spinning disks, all in the same, same node and build pools out from there. Um, we, we offer a REST API, which enables us to work with the OpenStack sender uh, driver. It also helps us uh, manage the installation easier and upgrade things over time. Um, we've introduced um, in uh, a release about this time last year, um, we greatly enhanced our GUI. So we went from really just a dashboard because as this is kind of software-defined storage, a lot of our early customers literally deployed all this uh, via Python, right? They integrated it into build scripts and programmatically deployed it. As we as we grew our customer set, we found that a lot of them wanted to have a GUI. So we made a uh, a fairly rich GUI. Um, if people people like it. Um, it, it serves the purpose very well. As we get into a release that we have coming up at the end of the year, um, we'll really round out all the features in that GUI. 
so that you can do everything from the GUI that you can do from the API or the CLI. Right. I mean, if you were to estimate sort of how, how much can you do in, uh, you know, in, in GUI versus CLI, do, do you need to sort of venture into CLI often or uh, can you do the majority of day-to-day -day tasks via the GUI? The monitoring setup of the system and monitoring can all be done via the GUI. There are provisioning tasks that still need to be done via the API or the CLI. Right, right. I mean, because the, the, the GUI was something that really stood out for me, as I mentioned at the start of the podcast here. I mean, uh, I was fortunate enough to work with yourself and the team earlier in the year to uh, pull together a demo. And I've got to say, the demo was, uh, you know, sorry, the user interface there was was brilliant. It's one thing that stood out. I mean, uh, as someone who wasn't familiar with Scale.io coming in, it was just so intuitive. Um, you know, it was very clearly laid out. The dashboard really just gave you an excellent sort of at-a-glance view as to what was happening under the hood. So, you know, um, I'm a big fan of gauges and dials and what have you to sort of convey what's what's happening, and it uh, it definitely ticked all the boxes there. Uh, you know, and it does uh, it does it does look very very good. It does give a very good dashboard um, view of the environment. Where I see it really helping differentiate itself from other solutions is within the GUI there. Um, you can go from that front dashboard view into what we call our back-end view. And what that does is it gives a storage administrator the same types of views that they're used to with array-based products today. So it's another one of those things where we're trying to ease the transition for customers and de-risk their move into a software-defined world by giving them the same visibility into the underlying storage uh, that they're used to today. In fact, one of the other demonstrations we did for uh, EMC World, we, we in fact showed a 16,000 uh, volume OpenStack environment and allowed you to drill into the device level, so an individual drive in a server serving up all these volumes and show you uh, latencies, uh, IOP size, bandwidth size, all of that down to a very granular fashion of the disk level. And that's something that um, you don't get with all the other software-defined solutions out there. So we're, we're not only trying to make it look good, but we're trying to make it be very, uh, very familiar to a storage admin. And then conversely, if you want to be able to relinquish all control over to your VMware team uh, with our uh, 1.3.0 release that came out about this time last year, we introduced a vSphere web client plugin that from soup to nuts allows you to set up the Scale.io system all within the vSphere context. So if you do want to relinquish control over or let the, the, the VMware team manage things from a familiar interface, that can all be done there as well. Excellent. No, no, that's, that sounds really good. I mean, all of this sounds very, uh, yeah, definitely very... Uh very appealing. I mean, you know, the listeners of, of the podcast here, I mean, if, if this is something they want to try out or, you know, perhaps perhaps get some uh, some stick time with, I mean, how, how do they go about doing that? Do they need to, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, reach out to EMC to get someone on site to do that? Or is there an easier way to, you know, uh, perhaps, perhaps kick the tires on Scale.io? Well, and I, you know, we're, um, we're, we're lucky to be part of this emerging technologies division within EMC, and we have a big drive to uh, become a software company and help lead EMC into this software-defined era. And thus, across all of our business units within, within our division, we are driving toward uh, openness. Um, so we've, we, we've made some important hires over the course of the last uh, 
six months to a year to bring people into the company that are are driving us toward um, I, I don't want to say necessarily an open source solution, but more open, meaning that we have um, we make it easy. In fact, we call it free and frictionless scale I.O. is something we announced in the EMC world, which means you can come to the EMC website. You don't have to log in. You don't have to give us your name, your phone number, anything like that, and you can get a download of scale I.O. Other products within our software-defined portfolio, same type of thing. We're making it easy for our customers to um, go out and try the, the software. So you go to emc.com slash scale.io, and there's a big download button right there that takes you to our Scale.io community. And the community hosts um, the latest software. It's our enterprise software, full functionality. There's no timer on it. Oh, wow. And Yeah, no timer and um, unlimited feature set. And you're able to, as you accept the end-user licensing agreement there, um, use it for what we call evaluation purposes. So let's say you're, you're, uh, you're tasked at your organization to go off and build your next-gen infrastructure. You decide you want to do it software-defined. You're able to go get the Scale.io software and look at how you would deploy that programmatically. Right. So, so, so what's the catch here? I mean, obviously not time-limited at all. Um, you can download it. I mean, what, what, what happens from a support perspective? Uh, you know, if, if people like, like this, download it, implement it, you know, in a test dev, uh, you know, type environment, for example. Um, well, and it's, I think there's an important distinction there, right? So there's, you know, some people, you know, test dev, if you're a software company, um, means a lot, and that is production and stuff that, that is you know generating money for the company, so to speak. So this is really designed to help you understand how scale IO works and how it would fit into your infrastructure. So it's uh, you know it's test dev from a um, you know IT evaluation perspective, not necessarily from an operations perspective. So you, you have the ability to, <clears throat> to use it in this unlimited fashion to figure out how it fits into your environment and scales out. We provide what we call community support for it. So if you need help setting it up, you, can, you, do, have to, you do have to create a login and, um, on our community. We don't use that to, to market to you. It's, it's just a, a way to identify yourself and be able to log into our system. And other people within the Scale.io community, some are um, you know, within our product management and system engineering teams, but there's also a lot of customers on the community that are answering questions for each other. In fact, uh, one of my customers out of uh, Houston, Texas, I saw yesterday was answering another customer's question about how resiliency works. So we're really starting to see the community form, and it's not just EMCers uh, answering questions out there. We actually have our users answering questions for other users. Oh, that's excellent. So if you download it, you, you know, you're not left in the lurch as where if you've got any questions there, you do have community support behind you. But uh, obviously, if you went live into production with this, you know, at that point, that's where you get the value add of, uh, of EMC support and uh, updates, etc. Absolutely. So you'll, you know, you in essence can update the software off the community version as well. But when you go to move it into production, 
Um, you would license it and buy a support contract for it, of course, at that point as well. Um, we can take whatever you would have built up to try it and license that. So if you have um, you know, built something out and you don't want to rebuild it and you're able to move from your testing environment into production, we can license that capacity and go right forth with it. Fantastic. That's great. So you know, you're not losing any time you've invested into getting it into a sort of production ready state. Um, Absolutely. That's excellent. Well, this is, this is brilliant stuff, Jeff. And it's something that I'm going to download definitely and, uh, you know, have a play with in, in my lab there. And uh, like I say, I enjoyed pulling the, uh, the demo together earlier in, earlier in the year, but uh, I wouldn't mind sort of getting under the uh, under the hood with it a little bit more. Um, definitely great. Well, b before we wrap up here, I was wondering, you know, are you able to give us any sort of uh, any teasers at all on, on roadmap or anything like that? What, what type of things can we expect from Scale.io uh, going forward? Obviously, a lot of great features there as of today, but uh, uh, I, I I know the uh, the engineering team around this are very proactive and definitely uh, you know pushing the uh, the feature set even further. They sure are, and you know our we have and uh, we depend on our customers to help us drive our our roadmap and very much our kind of our top two customers are have a, a big say in our roadmap and a lot of what's coming out in our 2.0 software release at the end of the year is around um, resiliency and manageability. Um, and that's, that's a lot of what's coming um, near the end of the year. We will also be coming out with software that helps us um, manage the hardware as well. So as we're coming out with the Scale.io nodes, we're going to have software that helps us discover those, add them to the cluster, and, and do that in a, in a, you know, via API or via the GUI, whichever, whichever you may want there. But um, you know, kind of to that end, the software, there's... You know, let me call out three very quickly that, that are coming. And one is uh, very near and dear to my heart, and that is <clears throat> we're going to be able to offer support for Ubuntu, um, which is great. If you look at a lot of these, uh, you know, uh, service providers, whether they be large or small, they seem to be moving toward Ubuntu um, as a way to build out their their infrastructure, so we're going to have support for Ubuntu. That's uh, that's uh, again something I I, I th find very exciting. Being a, a Linux user for about 15 years, I started out with Debian, so it's uh, it's great to see um, commercial support for uh, uh, for something like this. the The next thing that's uh, I think very interesting is we're coming out with something we call Instant Maintenance Mode, and what Instant Maintenance Mode does is allows um, the operator to query the Scale.io system and see if it's okay to reboot a machine, right? You need to reboot a machine to apply a patch or for some other maintenance. Well, we can query the Scale.io system and make sure that it's okay to reboot that node. We do that with CLI or API. We, when we get the okay, it's okay to reboot that node. We go off and do it, and Scale.io will mark that node as being temporary offline on purpose and we in essence make a third copy of all the writes coming into that machine so when it comes back online we're able to just push a little bit of data back to it and catch it up so it, it makes reboots um, safer within the environment and gives you a programmatic way to be able to understand whether it makes whether you should reboot a machine right now or not. So that's something that operationally will be very important to to all of our customers. Yeah, that's a, that's a nice feature. I can see that one being very popular. 
Yeah, um, we add some resiliency things, so we improve our clustering. And then from a security perspective, um, something that uh, we'll be adding is LDAP support. So right now, Scale.io manages its own user database. We'll be able to hook it up to a variety of different Active Directory and LDAP-type environments, um, which is something that you know, uh, our larger customers certainly, uh, certainly need to, to integrate in their environments. And then lastly, I guess the last thing I would call out, um, again, somewhat of a security or uh, data integrity feature, we'll be doing an end-to-end in-flight checksum. So that has been something that has uh, has been asked for by a lot of our customers, and and part of that is because um, you know we as a, a storage community have have driven that into the mindset of our customers that they need to be able to check some their data. Um, we're doing it a little bit differently than we do it on our array-based products, but we'll really be checking from the application through our driver. Um, across the network, from the storage down, you know, from our our software processes all the way down to writing it to storage, we'll be doing checksums along the way, so we can really make sure that the data that's written from a host is is what's ending up on disk. Definitely, yeah, yeah. Information and data security definitely uh, paramount for, or should be paramount for most companies out there. You bet. And then, as I mentioned, last one, I'll, I'll sneak in there. Um, we will be filling out the, you know, what we call it is GUI front end management, but we'll, we'll, f- we'll finish up all the functions within the GUI so that you can run everything from the GUI um, and not have to use CLI at all if you don't wish to. Fantastic. And so, when, when the, two, you know, the 2.0 version comes out at the end of the year, will that be made available for download? Absolutely. So everything as, uh, in fact, that's, uh, I've had a a handful of customers log into support.emc.com and be like, you know, where's my entitlement? And we're like, well, you don't, you just go to the public website and download it. So we're, we make, you know, we had a a maintenance release come out last Friday, 1.3.132.1. It immediately went on to the community site. So um, it, it, it shows up there at the same time it does everywhere else. So, yes, those new features are out there and available um, from day one. Fantastic. Well, that's really good. So there's nothing, anyone listening to this, there's nothing stopping you, folks. You know, get out there, download it. It's only going to cost you your time and uh, assuming you've got the hardware to, uh, to, to, to run it on. And, uh, you know, downloading it here in, in my lab environment, for example, would I need to, I'd need to roll out three instances of it, uh, to, you know, before I can start provisioning storage? Absolutely. Um, You know, we've had uh, we've had almost 10,000 downloads so far um, since, uh, you know, the end of June. So in just uh, two and a half months or so, lots of people out there looking at it and we see the resulting, um, uh, you know, effects of that. We we have a lot more people asking us about it, a lot more people looking into it and taking it, uh, taking it seriously. So it's uh, it's been a great thing. It's certainly possible, you know, one thing I'll mention there as far as running it, you can run it in a, uh, what I call a nested virtualized environment. So you could take uh, one or two physical servers and put VMware on it and, you know, virtualize your your hosts and do that. Um, Certainly works. You can uh, can run into some networking gremlins sometimes there that uh, may... Make it appear that it's it's not working and have you know some some troubleshooting need to be done. So, doing it on bare metal 
is definitely easier to do. But, you know, if you just wanted to take a look at the GUI and kind of see how some of the operational factors are, you know, you could certainly uh, spin up a hypervisor, roll out uh, a handful of CentOS images and run it on there and get a really good flavor of it. That's awesome. Yeah. So, so like I say, they had nothing, nothing really stopping folks uh, from uh, giving it a try. Definitely. Uh, you know, sounds, sounds you great. And I'll, I'll definitely be doing it myself. So um, and, uh, one of our, one of our, one of our friends as well has built a, uh, a vagrant installer that's available uh, that's linked to from the scale IO community. Ah. So that can make it really easy to roll out as well. Fantastic. Oh the, yeah. I can see that being popular. Yep. Definitely. Hey, JT, well, fantastic. Some, you know, some great stuff here. We've covered, you know, a, a lot on Scale.io here. It's definitely a product that I'm very excited about. Like I say, at the start of the year, I enjoyed working with yourself and the team and getting hands-on time with it. And uh, uh, I haven't had time up to now to actually download and, and install it in my lab, but it's definitely on my to-do list in the next sort of uh, few weeks or so. Um, so, you know, just to, just to finish up, um, if folks want to find out more about Scale.io um, and also yourself, you know, um, I know you're pretty active on social media. How, how do folks get hold of you and how do they find out more? Well, certainly um, if you go out there, you join the community and post things that uh, those, those make it, I, I read every one of them that comes in. So certainly can reach out to me via the community. Uh, my Twitter handle is at scale.io monster. Um, so feel free handle. to, <laughs> <laughs> uh, feel free to, uh, to, to send me something there. But, um, you know, what I would say is get out there and try it. And, um, you know, there, we do have a great community of people out there. Um, I've got a, a team of, of Scale.io specific engineers worldwide, so we can, we can help you out anywhere, anytime. And certainly for any folks that are going to be at VMworld, would love, to, uh, would love to take the opportunity to show you a demonstration of it or talk in depth about... Um, how the infrastructure works. You know, we just kind of scratched the surface uh, on things during the podcast today, but would love to, uh, you know, spend a couple hours going through the infrastructure with you, uh, log into a system, show you how it looks at scale. So um, anytime, anywhere, I'm uh, willing to show somebody uh, how this thing works and uh, enjoy doing it. So it's, it's definitely passionate about this stuff. It's, uh, I do soundly believe that this is an important part of the future of these software-defined storage offerings. And, uh, you know, I think we're going to see over the course of, of the next year or so a lot of startups uh, start up and fail. And I know that EMC is, is going to prevail. We've, we've put, we're putting a, uh, a huge emphasis on it. It's, uh, it's a big part of our emerging technologies division. It's, we're well-funded and, uh, you know, it's, uh, I can't bring on people fast enough, uh, to help us out with this. So, you know, growing the team as well. So, uh, you know, certainly reach out to me if, uh, if this sounds interesting and you think you might want to be part of, uh, of my scale IOSE team. Fantastic. Well, there's an offer in itself there. Well, All right. JT, been fantastic talking with you today. Thanks very much for your time and uh, covering off Scale.io. Much appreciated. All right. Thanks a lot, guys. 